Well, let's begin with a survey question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you at work? Think for a minute about the work you do every day, whether you work out of the home or you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, whether you're a full-time student or a retiree. Think about what it is you do every day just to kind of make a living and provide for yourself and your loved ones. With one being extremely unhappy and 10 being extremely happy, how happy are you at work? Now, every year, a research, a nonprofit research book called The Conference Board releases its results of worker satisfaction in America. They take into consideration a variety of criteria trying to arrive at this compensation and benefits, workplace environment, opportunity for advancement, benefits, those sorts of things. The good news is that worker satisfaction is on the rise in America and has been for quite a while now. The bad news is that it's still less than 50%. About 48, 49% of Americans say they are uh, happy at work, which means most Americans are still unhappy. So if you chose a six or higher, you're doing better than most of the people around you. In fact, some people are so unhappy at work that a significant number of them, about a third actually, would rather take a $5,000 pay cut if they could just be happier on their jobs. Now, none of the Grace Chapel staff have offered to take a $5,000 pay cut, <laughs> so I'm assuming they're very happy at their work. Now, as we mentioned, there's a variety of factors that go into workplace satisfaction, but the researchers have isolated one factor that almost guarantees worker satisfaction, and this is no joke. Free food. 67% of the people who get free food at work say they are very or extremely happy at work. Now, if you're an employer here, all you have to do is provide free lunch and everybody will drop 5,000 bucks from their annual salary and still be happy. I don't know if that's how it works, but what number did you come up with? How satisfied are you with your daily work? In case you're wondering, I put myself at about a 9.75. I love my job. I truly do. The only thing that would make me a 10, free donuts. <laughs> I'm good, free donuts. Well, all this to say, if, if, the, if the data is correct, most Americans are not thriving at work. And that's too bad, because thriving at work is what God had in mind when he put us here on this earth and gave us work to do. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. Now remember, this is before the fall. Work is not a result of the curse. Work was part of paradise. We were meant to, to, to join God in creating and, and maintaining and expanding and enriching this good world that he has made. And that work was meant to be a source of joy and satisfaction and deep partnership with God. And, and, and there was free food. Every good tree is yours for fruit. It wasn't until after the fall that work became a burden and a frustration. The sweat of your brow, painful toil. 
So how can we rediscover the happiness we were meant to find at work? How can our work become an opportunity for, uh, for, for growing in our relationship with God and contributing to His work in the world instead of feeling like a necessary evil that brings out the worst in us and distracts us from our spiritual life and pursuits? How can we thrive in our working environments? That's what we're going to go after here today. So whatever it is, whatever kind of work you do uh, on a daily basis, just keep that in mind as we work our way through this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, to a group of people just like us living and working in this city. We're working our way through the second half of this letter, so Paul's getting very practical. Last week we talked about how to thrive at home, and uh, today we're talking about how to thrive at work. I even rolled up my sleeves to get into the spirit of things. So... (laughs) Let's read the section, and then we'll come back and try to look at it a little more closely. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, before we go any further, we need to talk a little bit about slavery and about why Paul doesn't seem to speak more emphatically against it as we kind of wish he would. It helps to understand that slavery was a social and economic reality in the ancient world. Historians tell us that about a third of the population of the Roman Empire would have been slaves or servants. Another third were probably former slaves or servants who had worked or paid their way out of it. And the other third would have been people who had slaves. So Paul is addressing the economic working reality for the majority of the population here. Understand, too, that slavery was was the means by which many people, materially poor people, even many working class people, this was the way they provided for themselves, a way of having a roof over their head and food on the table. If if slavery had been abolished in one fell swoop, even if that was possible, it, it would have put millions of people out on the street with no means to provide for themselves. Understand, too, that certainly some of these slaves would have been exploited and abused for for sure. But understand it was also very common for slaves and servants to be treated like members of the household, like members of the family, and often to be given significant substantive responsibilities and not just meaningful, meaningless labor. So all this to say that slavery in the ancient world wasn't exactly like the, the race-based slavery that we are unfortunately familiar with in European-American history. In our own nation, And not that long ago, an entire people group was systematically and institutionally exploited and oppressed generation after generation after generation. Slavery in in America is is a horror, was a horror and a sin from which we have fully yet, yet to fully repent of, which is why we continue to feel the effects of it to this very day. 
So fortunately now, we've come to understand that it is not right for any human being to own or exploit or oppress another human being, that we are, every one of us, made in the image of God, that we are equal before God and before one another. And Paul reminds us, he reminds his readers here, that with God there is no favoritism. Earlier in the same chapter, he writes, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So what we find here and in other biblical passages is that the biblical writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, laid down principles that when fully understood and applied would lead to the abolition of slavery. Now tragically, it took the human race and even the church took us far too long to understand this truth and to apply it. But, but in the end, it was primarily Christ-following people who led the fight to abolish slavery in the Western world. And truth be told, it is primarily Christ-following people who are leading the fight today to abolish human trafficking and slavery in many other parts of the world. But for the purposes of this letter, in this moment in time, Paul is simply addressing the working reality of the people he's writing to, the Christians at Colossae. And almost everyone reading this letter, the members of the Colossian church, would have either been slaves, had slaves, or dealt with slaves in the course of their daily work. And so the principle he lays down here can help us understand our daily work as well and how we can thrive and help the world to thrive by the way that we work. So with that in mind, the first thing we learn from Paul is that we thrive and the world thrives when we treat our work like an act of worship. When we treat our work like an act of worship. Now chances are you're not used to thinking of your workplace, whatever it might be, as a sanctuary, like the room you're sitting in right now. But Paul is clearly telling us that our work is a way of glorifying God. Listen again to some of his words. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Paul's reminding us that God is our audience. Not just on Sunday morning when we're singing songs and offering prayers, but on Monday morning when we're doing laundry or designing software. He's the one for whom we're doing it. He's challenging us to be reverent, not only when we're sitting in church, but when you're sitting at your desk or behind the wheel of a car or a truck. Reverent. Whatever you do, he says, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Remember, he's talking to slaves here. Most of them would have been doing menial tasks and manual labor. But Paul elevates their work by, by, by telling they're doing those tasks as offerings up to God. Imagine how hard and carefully you would do your daily work if you knew someone as important was going to be the recipient of it, the president or your pastor or somebody like that. <laughs> well, it turns out that you are doing it for someone important, the most important person of all. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. 
Now, my first real boss in the, in the working world was a burly, scowling, chain-smoking Marine Corps vet named Artie. I was working at a printing company after school and high school and would come to sweep up and pack jobs and load trucks and make deliveries and things like that. There were a few teenagers uh, working around the plant that day and uh, that, at that time. Most of the time, we did our work on our own. We knew what we were supposed to do, and we took care of it. But Artie, Artie had this habit of roaming around the plant. So you never knew when he might show up on the loading dock or in the back room. So you were always working or always had someone on the lookout <laughs> because you didn't want Artie to catch you not working. Everyone works harder when the boss or the customer is watching. But as it turns out, God is, is our boss. He's, he's our customer or our client. He's the one for whom we work, and he's always watching. He's always listening. When you think of it that way, you begin to approach your work in a different way. As you can probably imagine, those of us who participate in the worship life of our church, we, we take our work very seriously. The musicians, the creative artists, the technicians, everybody. I mean, we... We put an incredible amount of time and energy into planning and executing our worship services. I mean, it begins weeks and weeks in advance as we choose themes and elements for the service, and, and all those elements are reviewed very carefully. Which songs, which readings, which prayers, which, which words are we going to offer, what creative elements, what drama, what pieces of art will be a part of the journey that particular week. Every one of them has gone over very, very carefully. Which one best aligns with the message of the day? What order should we put them all in? What will the mood be at that moment in the service? Can we execute that particular element with excellence on this particular week? All those elements are rehearsed again and again and again. Preachers write and rewrite and rewrite again their messages to get the words and the flow just right. Musicians show up early to warm up. Technicians get here early to set up. And before it all begins, we meet in a green room somewhere on one of our campuses to go over everything, to get our hearts right, and to pray and commit it to the Lord. And you wouldn't want anything less. And we do that not just so that we can offer the congregation an experience of worship, but because these are our offerings of worship. This is our work, and we want to do it to the very best of our ability so that it honors the God we love and serve, whether the congregation recognizes what went into it or not. All that, I'm sure, makes perfect sense, but here's the thing. The work that you do Monday through Friday is just as important to God as the work we do Monday through Friday as we get ready for Sunday. The meal you're preparing, the, the term paper you're writing, the product you're designing and manufacturing and selling and delivering, the project you're managing, the service you're providing, the knowledge you're imparting, the health you're maintaining, the beauty you're creating, the capital you're venturing, all of it. These are offerings lifted up to God who gave you the ability, the skill, the opportunity, the resources to do that particular thing and to do it well for the good of the world. Your work is a daily, weekly, annual, lifelong offering to God. 
and the places in which you work, the office, the cubicle, the car, the kitchen, the classroom, the courtroom, the studio, the stadium, the, the base, the battlefield, the trading floor, the construction site, the street, city street, the farmer's field, the trading floor, those spaces can be just as sacred as this space you're sitting in right now because God wants to meet you in that space. He wants to form you in that space. He wants to use you in that space for the good of people around and for the advance of his kingdom in the world. Your work is an act of worship, and you may not have a green room somewhere in your house, but I hope that before your work week begins on Monday morning, I hope you find a few quiet minutes to, to, at home or in the car or the parking lot or somewhere. I hope you find some moments just to pray, to offer your work up to God, to invite Him into that space. Because what you're doing throughout that week is going to be just as important as what we're offering up here to God. We thrive, and the world thrives when we treat our work as an act of worship. Now, that could seem like enough, hopefully, to get you excited to go to work tomorrow. But it turns out there's something else going on here as well. There's more to thriving at work than working hard and working well. Paul also calls our attention to the people we work with and for and around. And he calls us to treat those people with dignity and with respect and maybe even love. They tell us that one of the most significant factors in workplace satisfaction after food, literally after food, the second thing that provides worker satisfaction is positive relationships on the job. 60% of people who say they are happy, very happy, or extremely happy at work say they have positive relationships in the workplace. And you have, if you have a friend at work, your, your satisfaction will, will be boosted by 50% just by having a positive relationship at work. So how do you feel about the people you work with and for? If you work at home, be careful how you answer, okay? <laughs> how do you feel? but how the people you work for and with and around. Turns out Paul has a lot to say about those relationships. Look again at verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything with sincerity of heart. Now again, these are slaves he's talking to. These are people whose lives were not their own. Their masters may well have been harsh, foolish, neglectful, cruel, ungodly. They likely had every reason to, to re be resentful of their masters, to resist their authority, to spit in the soup, or to skim some of the profits for themselves. They might likely even have been able to justify running away from their master. I mean, they're free in Christ after all. But Paul calls on those slaves not only to stay, but to do their best and to want the best for their masters, no matter who or what they were like. In fact, he says they should prepare the meal or clean the house or manage the books or the estate as if it was the very Lord Jesus Christ they were serving. Paul's reminding them that Jesus loves 
their masters. Even if they're cruel or foolish or harsh or ungodly. He's reminding them that Jesus died for their master's sins. That Jesus wants to make them whole and well and good. And if Jesus loves their master, then they can certainly love their master too. Now, as surprising as that might have been to hear, he says something just as surprising to masters. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Now, in that society, masters were under no obligation to to treat their slaves fairly. Slaves were pieces of property. They were assets to be managed and maximized. The law allowed them to do anything they wanted to their slaves with impunity. But Paul wants these Christian masters to treat their slaves with dignity and respect, to provide them with safe working conditions and fair wages and and reasonable hours. If you keep up with the workplace kinds of things, you've no doubt heard about the creative, open, flexible workspaces that uh, many new startup high-tech companies are offering to their employees. Google, for instance, is famous for the workplace environment it creates. Talk about free food. You can eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner at gourmet workstations all day long at Google. But that's just the beginning. There are Broadway-themed conference rooms for collaborating. There are Lego playstations for relaxing. There are razor scooters to get from one end of the building to the other end of the building. Employees are free to write on the walls, to take a nap, to bring their pets to work, to get a massage on their break. All of it paid for. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind when he said provide what is fair and right. But certainly, he would have a word to say to those of us who create environments for other people to work in, for those of us who manage or lead or supervise or coach or instruct or nurture, are we providing environments that are safe and fair and right and good and beautiful? He goes on to remind these masters that they also have a master. You have a master in heaven. In other words, we're all the same before God. There's no favoritism. We're all made in his image. We're all accountable to God for the way we work and the way we treat our fellow human beings. If God God loves the slave as much as the master, and so we love all the people we work for and with and around. So let's add that to our lesson. We thrive and the world thrives when we treat work as an act of worship and workers as people God loves people God loves. Now, at this point, you might be likely to ask again, why doesn't Paul take this to the logical conclusion and just tell these masters to release their slaves? Well, again, we've already explained why why the world wasn't quite ready for that to happen yet. At that point, in that dramatic a fashion, it wouldn't have been a good thing for many of these people. But there's a very interesting backstory to what's going on here that I think is illustrative and you'll find interesting. Later in this letter, Paul mentions a a young man named Onesimus who is actually visiting with him and ministering to him here in prison. His name comes up towards the end of the letter in some personal greetings. Paul writes, he, now that's 
Tychicus. Tychicus was delivering the letter. Tychicus is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. Well, it turns out that Onesimus is a runaway slave. We read about him in another letter Paul wrote, the letter to Philemon. Philemon is a Christian man. Onesimus apparently was at one time a slave working for Philemon. Something happened. Onesimus ran away. But after running away, he encountered Paul, and somewhere along the way, he came to faith in Christ under Paul's ministry. So now he's a believer, and he's staying with Paul and ministering to Paul. And as happy as Paul is to have Onesimus' help and support, he is more eager for these two men, these two brothers in Christ, slave and master, to be reconciled. So at a certain point, he sends Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter asking Philemon to receive Onesimus back without punishment, which would have been standard treatment for the day. Just listen to a few lines from that other letter Paul writes to Philemon. He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both me and you. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, if you read between the lines, it sounds as though what Paul is asking Philemon to do is not only take Onesimus back without punishment, but perhaps to set him free as well. He's a man like you, Paul reminds him, made of the same stuff in the image of God. Not only that, he's a brother in Christ. How much better to have Onesimus in your life as a brother than as a slave? So once again, we see the biblical writers laying down these principles that when understood and applied would lead to the abolition of this, abolition of this thing we call slavery. And those are the kinds of things that happen when we treat people like human beings and not just workers who provide us with some service or product or assistance that we need. Now, we would all be very quick to denounce slavery. We'd not, we would not want to be accused of discriminating against any class or of person or worker or showing favoritism. But how many of us take for granted people who work for us or who serve us in some particular way? And, and how many of us begrudge the people who are over us, who supervise us or pay our salaries? How many of us view our coworkers and maybe competitors as rivals to be beaten, to be overcome, or view them as distractions or interruptions or annoyances? How differently we would go about our daily work if we recognized all of them as people God loves. God loves your boss. Yes, your boss. God loves that person. Jesus died for your customer, your client, your student, your patient. God wants to bless the people who work alongside you, with you, cooperating with you or competing against you in the business world. He loves them as well. The cashier, the cab driver, the coach, 
the captain, the doctor, the teacher, the lawyer, even the banker God loves. All of them. And he asks us to love them too. So in the same way that Philemon had an opportunity to bless this worker named Onesimus, you and I have opportunities every day to bless people by treating them with dignity and respect and even love. It might mean simply taking the time to look someone in the eye and thank them for the service they provided or for the work they did for you. It might mean going the extra mile, doing more than you were asked to do, more than in your job description, more than you're being paid to do. It might mean letting someone else take the credit for something that you did. It might mean stepping out of your work mode for a minute and looking someone in the eye and asking how they're really doing and perhaps caring for them or helping them or befriending them or praying for them in some way. I worked for Artie for a couple of years there in high school and then for another summer after my first year of college. And Artie and I were about as different as two people could possibly be. He did not know what to make of a church-going teenager who didn't swear and sneak a smoke every chance he could. He just could not figure me out. And, and his, his mission in life, on a certain sense, was to try to teach me the ways of the world. How to load a truck, how to pack a box, how to bet on the horses, how to drive in New York traffic. And, and my mission in life was to to try to show him that you could be a Christian and, and still work hard and have fun and enjoy life. And, and over time, Artie and I came to both respect each other and, and even to enjoy each other. I have fond memories of going to Artie's house with the crew to watch the Rangers and the Bruins and playoff time came and, and they'd all pass Budweiser around and me and the guys would drink root beer. And, but he, he let us feel like we're part of the guys. He helped me grow up. And in the end, Artie never did get me to bet on the horses and I never did get him to church. But I do like to think that, that we were better people, that we were better workers, and that each of us got a little bit closer to God for having worked together. I, I came to love Artie, to pray for him for many, many years till we lost touch with each other. And those are the kinds of things that happen when we treat the people around us not just like workers, but like people God loves. Well, this is an awful lot of talk from a guy who only works one day a week, right? So, before we finish, let's hear from somebody who has a real job, someone who's out there in the marketplace every day and has come to understand some of these truths. Let's turn our attention to the screens and hear from a young guy here at Grace Chapel who has made some fresh discoveries about work in recent years. My name is Romez. I'm a technical support engineer at the Soul Systems. I help our resellers help their customers with their issues that they might face in our software. Growing up, I always thought that I would finish school, get a job. A couple of years working this job, I will jump into another job with a better salary or a better position. And that was pretty much my life up until two years ago. Though I'm not that old, this is actually my seventh professional job. But there was always something missing or not right in this entire equation. And I started exploring what it really means to be a professional worker. 
and how can I be worshiping while I'm working? I've learned how to worship God through my work, just by starting and taking Sabbath, and understanding how my work matters in the bigger picture of, of God's creation. People are starting noticing some changes in my life, especially at work. Um, I'm more diligent in trying to help my customers. For me, like knowing I'm doing this for God, not for humans, makes me don't want to like get angry when I have to get angry, or just calm myself down and remember the bigger picture. Or uh, if I'm gonna get sluggish or lazy, I remember like I'm doing this for God. My work thrives when I realize I'm not doing this job just for myself, but I'm doing it to worship God and help others. I don't look at my work anymore as I go, do my hours, um, help a couple of people, get good surveys, get good numbers, get my bonus. I look at it, that is a whole new way for me. I look as if I'm contributing for the kingdom of God in this world. I'm helping bring heaven on earth. So how happy would you think Ramez is at work? I'm guessing an eight or a nine, maybe on his way to a 10. Took him seven jobs to figure it out. Let's hope it doesn't take that long. For a period of time, Ramez's work was simply a way of earning a living and climbing the ladder and proving himself to the world. It wasn't until he came to understand that his work could be a way of expressing his faith in God and loving the people around him and contributing to God's good work in this world that the whole thing opened up for him. It was such an enlightening experience for him that his co-workers have noticed and asked him what's going on in his life that he suddenly brings such a different spirit to his work. How happy are you in your daily work? Maybe this is the first time you're hearing that God cares about your daily work or that he cares about you as a person and he cares about every part of your life. Maybe the first thing you can do towards happiness at work is inviting Christ into your life personally, not just as your master but as your savior to forgive you and make you whole and well and lead you into a new way of life. That's the first thing. But if you've done that, maybe it's time to ask if, if you're doing your best at the work God has put before you. Do you see your daily, weekly tasks as offerings of worship to God? Do you see the people working with and for and around you as human beings made in the image of God who God loves? When we do that, we thrive and the world thrives. To God's glory, the good of others, and our joy. So let's pray. Lord, I'd like to pray for my friends gathered here today and across our campuses who perhaps this evening or tomorrow morning will get in their cars or hop on a train or a plane or put on an apron and get to work. I thank you for the work that they do. I thank you for the places you're sending them, for the skills and the training and the experience and the influence that you've granted to them. 
And Lord, I pray that you send them off this week with a great sense of purpose and high calling. Lord, what impact thousands of workers could have as we spread out across greater Boston this week to point people towards Christ by the way that we work and the way that we treat one another. Lord, may we do that this week and in increasing measure in the days and weeks to come. Then may we find great joy in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.